0: you know, discuss and talk and have a good conversation, hearty conversation. <laughs> uh, by the way, we had a nice time Friday night for all the guys. We need to do this again more often. I know Dan Zeiss is not here and it's his house, but man, we uh, had our first colloquy in Sudan. So if you were a guy, that was a great time. We had guys from Lubbock and we had guys from Clovis kind of meet in the middle. And uh, we, we, it, was, it was a delightful time. I know a lot of guys were out of town, so we're looking forward to doing that again. So uh, we'll definitely, definitely have to plan for that. Of course, obviously, we're, we're saddened by the Nizuskis and the, um, uh, Ian and Rachel not being here. That's, um, but, you know, I was thinking, that's why I sent out that, that thing. If, by the way, if you're not on the GroupMe chat and you want to be, let us know and we can get you on there. Like the, the church has a GroupMe chat. I think the ladies have one and then the men have one. So let us know. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things like, you know, when you're, when you're planning a church... There is a lot of, especially in Clovis, as we all know, you know, our, our, uh, the situation here, the demographics, so there is a lot of coming and going, but here's the thing. I mean, we, we, you know, this is cool, so we started praying, this is when we first started this church years ago, we were, we were praying for more families, and when we started praying for more families, more families came, and then we kind of got lackadaisical or whatever, stopped praying for it, and then about three months ago, four months ago, we started praying for more families. That week Riley calls up his family, and then we've seen um, Henry, and then you know Tyler's here. so we have other families. You guys are here. You know, so in other words, you know, here's the thing: God's hand is on this church. We can, I, I mean, we have, I've never experienced a church with so many testimonies as far as just God's providential hand on this church like there is here. And so there's no doubt the Lord's blessing this church. We just have to keep being faithful, sharing the gospel, talking to people, discipling one another, discipling the people in our lives, telling people about the Lord, telling people about the Reform Faith, these kinds of things. God's going to bless us. God's continue. He's He's going to continue blessing this church, as we all know. The, the fellowship here is is bar none. It does not get any better than the people here. So he, you know, as far as the church plant goes, as far as like a core goes, it doesn't get any more blessed than what we have in this church. And so we just got to keep moving on, you know, and and um, and and bring, you know, um, whoever the Lord wants to bring. Praise God, you know, and and, and just, uh, and I think there's another Air Force guy coming, is that soon, or is that true, soon, right, next week, yeah, we're not supposed to tell William about that, come on man, it's supposed to be a surprise, they're old buddies I guess, so anyways, all right, so let's open up to Mark chapter 10 today, thank you by the way for Eric, as, as we all know, thank you Eric, uh, we're speaking of blessings, we're all blessed by Eric, as we all know. Um, and Eric's going to continue his Jonah series, so it's not like that's the end of that. But we're working out a system where where he can definitely continue preaching through that. Uh, but, but I mean, you know, we we all know how blessed we are by Eric, so thank you, brother. Um, and it is good to be back. I've certainly missed you guys. It's it's uh, you don't think that you don't realize how much you know you like you miss people until you aren't going, and then so I've definitely missed y'all. Uh, but this is Mark chapter ten. So what we're going to do? We're going to start. Uh, today, beginning today, for the next three weeks, uh, maybe actually four weeks, so three or four weeks, we're going to do a series regarding money, wealth, the theology of wealth, what the Bible says about money. We're going to do it through looking at Mark, though, okay? So it's not going to be, it's not going to be like a, a topical type of series where you're going all over the place. We're going to do this by looking at where we are in Mark. So Mark chapter 10, verse 17, I know it's been forever since I've been here, but we're dealing with the rich young ruler today. Okay, So this opens up some some uh, some conversations and insight regarding what the Bible teaches us about wealth and money and what it what it doesn't teach us as well. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll look at this. Holy Spirit, we come now. We thank you that you are with us. We thank you, O God, that you've promised to give us your Holy Spirit if we ask. And so, Lord, we are certainly asking for your Holy Spirit. We are uh, desperate people, Lord, needy people. Without the Holy Spirit, we know that uh, we 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 certainly can do nothing good for the kingdom, nothing good spiritually, Lord. So please give us grace, Holy Spirit. Come now and do us, help us, open our eyes to to the things of Christ, Lord. We want to see Christ. We want to see ourselves and be convicted, so that we run to Him all the time, over and over. We pray these things in His name, Amen. All right, so let's read 20, uh, verse seventeen through twenty-two. So there, we're gonna. We're looking at six verses today. So this is verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But as these words, but at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Now, like I mentioned, I know it's been forever, but if you can remember five weeks ago, four weeks ago, okay, we were looking at what the call of discipleship was that involves sacrifice, cost, time, but especially regarding children. So look at verse 13. So thirteen through sixteen is about Jesus blessing the children. The children come to Jesus, and He says, "Bless these children are blessed." Why? He says in um, uh, He says right here in verse fourteen, "Permit the children to come to me; do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God." Look at this belongs to such as these. And in that society, in that culture, we saw that the children in this culture, in the times of Christ, were regarded as the lowest of the low. Children were beneath women as far as how people saw children as far as how people saw like the social spectrum children were at the bottom children were on they, they were nothing they were insignificant right we we spoil our children we think they're cute and everything that's not the way they were treated in the days of christ so christ and this is the irony regarding today this is why I want to look at this at what we're looking at today I want to look at the children the children are received into the kingdom of god but here's a rich young ruler here's a man who has everything in as far as the eyes of society goes he has it all He has everything. So what Mark is doing here, it's no accident that the children are contrasted with a guy who has it all. The children are welcomed in. The children are are integrated into the kingdom of God. What's going to happen to this guy? Which is phenomenal because in this culture, and this is very important to understand too, in this culture, if you were wealthy, if you you had material wealth, if you had material blessings, and we're going to see this as we work through this passage today and the following weeks, God willing, If you were wealthy, this is where, you know, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, quote-unquote, okay? You know that when you read through the Old Testament, there are times, there are places in the Old Testament where it does show that God blesses His people materially, physically, right? Just like today, God takes care of His people. He takes care of us. We know that. The the problem, though, is that when you turn that and you, you, you basically... Eric was mentioning this in the catechism class today. You take God's word and you twist it and you make it say something that it doesn't say. Okay? So there is truth in the sense of does God take care of his people? Yes. Does God does God help us? Yes. If I need a new car, you know, so I can go to work. Can I pray for a car? Yes. Will God bless me with a car? A lot of times he does, right? Now if I'm praying for my own selfish motives, if I'm like, Lord, I need that third car or second car, I need a swimming pool or whatever. You know, not necessarily. But the point is is this, okay? In the culture that Christ is living in, if you were rich, if you were wealthy, it for them it was a given that God has blessed you, that you are right with God, that everything is okay between you and God, and therefore you are one of God's elect. You're part of the kingdom automatically if you're rich. So Christ is looking at the situation regarding this young ruler. This young ruler is anticipating Christ to turn around and say, hey man, I mean, you're good, you're rich. But that's not what happened. So let's look at this. Okay? Verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey towards Jerusalem, he's going southward now. Jerusalem, this is important because now he's headed towards the financial capital, where all the money is. Okay? A lot of the, Most of the wealth is in Jerusalem. So he's headed out. He's going on a journey, and then a man runs up to him. And in the parallel passages, that's where you get the idea that this is the this is a rich young ruler, because in Luke and in Matthew, it has the same the same story, right? And in 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 um the the word that the word for ruler here is archon. It means he is a a uh, he's connected to wealth, power, authority. But here's the catch, okay? If you were living in this culture and you were a ruler, what were you a ruler over? Good question, right? What did you rule over? And you can look into this culture and you can find out that what this man was probably ruling over was he was probably part of the Sanhedrin. He was probably part of the government council. So this is the, the Sanhedrin, of course, that's the that's the delegation or that's the uh, the group, the body that will eventually decide to, to crucify Christ, to bring Christ to, to Pilate. Okay, The Sanhedrin, they were very powerful. This was the center of religious, political, and economic power. And the reason he's probably connected to that, I mean, more or less, it's, it's almost a given, is because they were typically wealthy. They were almost always wealthy. The Sanhedrin people were always wealthy. So not only is he a ruler, but he's also rich. And he's property rich. The word that it uses here is he's property rich. Why is that important? Well, because, again, it goes back to the Sanhedrin. What happens is, is, is within the Sanhedrin, that community, um, the, the wealth and the property was passed down. And so because he's young... He has probably received, he's probably inherited this wealth, and he's part of the Sanhedrin. It's passed down. He's inherited his father's seat also on the Sanhedrin council. Um, it's, he has a land-based income stream, and that's where all of this is, is kind of going. Okay, So now you have this man who's part of the Sanhedrin. Who else was part of the Sanhedrin? Well, Gamaliel and other people like that. Well, Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel, remember? So there's a lot of connections here, but here's a man, and look at what this man does, and this is the most exciting thing. I mean, this is the most. This is this is what's. It's neat on the one hand because here's a man who's rich, he's young, he's a ruler, he has everything going for him in the society. And look at look at how he approaches Christ. So he runs up to him. You've probably all heard the stories about, um, you know, in this society you don't run anywhere. It's very it's very uh, embarrassing. It's it's very demeaning if you're going to run. If you're going to go anywhere, you don't run, right? You want to walk with a nice stately gait. You don't run. So this man's he's running. He doesn't care. He's like, "Man, there's Christ. I got to run to him. I've got to Not only does he run to him, what does he do? He runs up to him and kneels before him. Same thing. He's showing deference. He's showing honor to Christ. Genuine earnestness, deep respect. He kneels before him. And then, catch this, he asks the right question. "Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" That's the right question to ask. I've read some books, man, and this has been years ago, but they'll talk about, you know, if Christ was an evangelist today, if he was a typical American evangelist, you know what he would do when a guy comes like this, running up to him, falls at the feet, you know, falls, or you know, whatever, says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Close your eyes, we're gonna say the sinner's prayer, and then I'm gonna tell you that you're good to go. That's the that's the that's the American Christian way, right? And then he's good to go. And then now you're like, all right, man, now you're converted, you're a child of God. Well, well done, you know, let's all clap. And then he goes off and he's like, man, I'm a child of God. What does Christ do, though? See, Christ realizes. He knows better. Christ is always about making sure they know what they're getting themselves into. Counting the cost, right? So this man comes running up, falls at his feet, doing all the right things. He even calls Christ. Look what he says. He doesn't just ask the right question. But he says, good teacher. This man, you're a good teacher. Right, you're not, you're not like what the Pharisees are calling you. You're not like what a lot of the Sanhedrin guys are calling you some kind of some guy uh, possessed by Beelzebub. You're not you're not like that. You're a good teacher. So what does Christ say? Right now, here's the thing: we have to stop here and say this man is earnest. This man is genuine. This is the proper response. Right. This is the proper reaction for all of us. This is how we should be whenever Christ is. Whenever there's Christ, we should be running and asking these questions in in earnest and eager, talking about life with God. You know, what does it take to have life with God? But here's the question. When he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, ask yourself this. You go around, and you're talking to people about whatever, about the Lord, you know, about God, heavenly realities, and you'll hear the question, you know. Or if not, you can ask the question. Well, what do you think you have to do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question when you're evangelizing. What do you think it takes to be right with God? Something like that, right? What does it take for you to be right with God? What is it you you hear it said this way, what does it take for you to go to heaven? That's a good question. And so here's the here's the catch, okay, and this is why this is this is just so it's like cataclysmic, as far as it's just it's revolutionary what Christ is doing here. Because in the days of Christ, if you were to ask that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You go to a Pharisee. Hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? They had their answer for that. Their answer was, well, um, there's the dietary laws, there's the Sabbath laws, there's the cultic regulations, there's you know all these other things. Then the temple, you have to make the right sacrifices, and you have to be a Pharisee. Deep, very detailed interpretation of the law. That's how you inherit eternal life. You go to, of course, the Sadducees. The Sadducees had their own thing. The Essenes had their own thing. Every group has their own way, but they all included some type of detailed interpretation of the law. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to do that. You don't do that. You go to most people today, right? Go to a Roman Catholic. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, it's not like, oh, well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, it's like, okay, you got to be part of the church. you got to confess your sins. you got to partake of the mass. You you know, if you're married, that's even better. If you're a priest, that's, that's bad. You know, all these things. You know, like, wait a minute. Most people think that in order to inherit eternal life, it requires you doing something. That's for most Christians, I would probably guess. Most Christians, if you go to them, in my experience, when you go to Christians... You know, by profession, you ask them, you know, what do you what does it take to be right with God? Well, I'm a good person, right? We've all I'm a good person, I'm good enough to do it. I'm good enough to you know. I'm not like my Uncle Bob over here. You know, beat my dog or beat my wife or whatever, or his wife. Right? This is this is it's it's amazing because what Christ does here when he says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? You know what Christ is going to tell him? Christ, look at look at what he says. He says, at the very end of verse 21, I'm getting ahead of myself, but look at the very end of verse 21. This is the answer. Two words. What is it? Follow me. That's the answer. What do you have to do to inherit eternal life? Follow Christ. You're like, no, nah, man. come on. You, you got you to make it a little harder than that. I want to earn this. I want to really do something so I get a little credit for it, right? Christ doesn't say that. He says, look, come and follow me. Now with that, with following him, there is a sense in which, right, what happens? Repentance, letting go, turning from your idols, and that's what we see with this man. So let's look at the next part in verse 18. Now Christ, this man is probably, so in the in the in the custom of the day, is flattery was returned with flattery. So this man's running up, good teacher, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's falling at his feet. You know, so that a lot of times in, in some commentaries, um, in, in some of the custom, the idea is, is now that he has flattered Jesus, Jesus needs to turn around and flatter him. You know, like, oh, well, you know, I know I'm, well, thank you for calling me good, but sir, you know, you're good too. Like, you know, stand up, stand up, you know. He doesn't do that. He rebukes them. Look what he does in, in verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Why does he say that? Isn't Christ good? Christ is good. The man wasn't wrong for calling Christ good. The man was wrong for the way that he uses the word good. See, he uses it flippantly. He's not, if he thinks, because look, why, do, why can we say this? Because we know because of what happens. We know that because the the fact that he does not follow Christ, do you think that he really thinks Christ is the Messiah? No, otherwise he would have followed him. Do you think that that he actually thinks that Christ is God in the flesh? No, otherwise he would have followed him. Christ knows this. So whenever he calls Christ good, Christ recognizes, okay, you just use the word flippantly. It's like what, in our culture, we use the word love this way. You know, everybody, you know, love, I love pizza, I love the cowboys, I love... I love God. I love my, you know, I and then, and then, you know, the love is love. That's the craziest. Love is love. And, you know, you kind of love making fun of that one. Because it's like, what does that even mean? Love is love. I always say it's like, you know, blue is blue. Right? Or, or, or my shoe is my shoe. And what does love is love mean? We don't know. But, hey, love is love. It sounds good. We all want to say the word love. It's kind of like that. When you start using the word good in such a way that, the word good loses its meaning. It no longer has the meaning of good. It, has, it does not have the connotation of good. So Christ is saying what? Do you actually know what you're saying? That's what he's asking this guy. Do you know what you're saying? When you call me good, do you know what you mean by it? What do you mean by that? You call me a good teacher, but, but good is just a word for, for him, right? And notice when Christ, in verse 18, he says, God alone, no one is good except God alone. He's not demeaning himself. He's not, he's not saying, well, I'm, you know, sometimes you might look at that and say, well, he's, see right here, it's clear that he's not God. He's not doing that. What's he doing is, this is in a sense like, um, in Judaism actually, Judaism, the rabbis were very, very, it was very critical for rabbis not to be addressed as good for fear of blasphemy. So Christ is kind of working within that, within that culture. You know, don't, don't use that word, don't use that word flippantly because it's reserved for God alone. So again, in the eyes of this man, he's not God, he's just a good teacher. So Christ is trying to really emphasize that, listen, you're blaspheming me because you don't you don't know who I am. And you're using that word that's only reserved for God for somebody that you think is just a man, an ordinary teacher who happens to be a good one. Okay, so he, reju- he rebukes this man. Uh, but then he turns in verse 19 to this, the commandments. And then in the commandments, too, there's actually a little catch here because in the commandments in verse 19, notice what he says, okay? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not. Wait a minute, what's that one? What's that about? Do not defraud. I don't remember saying that one. We say that one? We don't say that one, right? So what's he doing? It's like, man, Jesus made a mistake. He was right. You know? He was no, of course not. So what's he doing here? That's the all these things. So here's the beauty of this. Okay, the word that he uses here is actually the same word. If you turn with me to James chapter five, so check this out. So this is this is, and this kind of gets into our our theology of wealth topic. Okay, and we're gonna we're it'll be more specific um, the next few weeks than it will be today. But but this this is gonna give us some insight into this. Okay, so James chapter five, and what you're gonna see is you're gonna see a pattern in James, and we're gonna see this. In other places as well. Okay, but James chapter 5. Now there's a word here, verses 1 through 4. It says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure." Now, remember who we're dealing with over here in Mark, right? A man who has a lot of treasure. Verse 4, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which have... Now, here's the word, which has been withheld by you. That word is the same word as defraud. Okay, And which you, you, it has been withheld from you. You've defrauded people. It cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Sabaoth. That's the Lord of hosts. That's the army. That's when the, the Lord is a warrior, kind of. That's the description for Lord the God as being a God of war. All right. And then he, he goes on. But here's the thing, okay? If you go go to uh, yeah, James chapter two, verse six. Look at James two, verse six. But you have dishonored. Same idea, same word. You have dishonored, defrauded the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Okay, well what's the problem here? See, here's the thing. The the especially in the Sanhedrin, in the days of Christ, just like today, you know, a lot of times when you're dealing with wealth, when you're dealing with uh property management, when you're dealing with this kind of stuff, there is a lot of corruption involved. There's a lot of corruption going on. And in the days of Christ, you remember why, so for instance, tax collectors, when we dealt with Matthew being a tax collector, why it was that he was hated by the Jews, not just because he worked with the Gentiles, but because the tax collectors would intentionally overcharge people and get away with it. Nobody could really get it, you know, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't do anything about it. So there's a lot of corruption going on from the top, and, and, and so when Christ is talking about defrauding, there's, it's very intentional that he's pointing this to somebody who is part of the system that is defrauding people. Now, um, and when I say system, you know, sometimes people use this kind of stuff, and they're like, "Oh, Jesus was a co- or a socialist." All right, this is not talking about socialism. It's not talking about capitalism. This is talking about what to do with your wealth. If you if you have as we we'll, as we'll get on, let me give you a, a teaser. Okay, wealth in itself is not bad. If you have a good work ethic as a Christian, in the sense of you're working hard, you're industrious, you're honest, you're showing up on time. Okay, there is a. Chance or likelihood that you will, and you're in. By the way, if you're a good steward, right? There's a chance that you might have money. So the thing is, is, is money in itself is not the problem, as we'll see. There were people in the scriptures who had money, but corrupted wealth is the problem. Exploited wealth is the problem. Okay, stealing is the problem. way, and then being selfish with it, not using it for God. That's the problem. Those are the problems. So there's a balance here. Right? Wealth in itself is not a problem, but as we see in 1 Timothy 6, Paul warns people, if you are rich, you are in a situation where you are tempted in ways that other people would not be. So it's not always a good thing, right? But the point here is this, okay? There are times, let's let's look at, uh, like for instance, John the Baptist, he, what does he tell tax collectors? Speaking of tax collectors, whenever he's at the lake, he's baptizing people, he says, and they come up, the tax collector's teacher, what should we do? And what does he say? Stop collecting more than what is prescribed. And then the greatest example of this is Luke 19 was Zacchaeus. We all know Zacchaeus, Luke 19. You have a man who is rich, just like this rich young ruler. He's got money, right? Zacchaeus has money. This rich young ruler has money. But look at the difference. Look at the difference in these in, these, in the attitudes of these guys. Okay, so Christ is coming that way. This man, just like the rich young ruler, he's excited. Zacchaeus is excited. He hurries. He jumps on this He goes up in the tree, right? He's waiting. He's happy. Finally, Christ is coming, just like this rich young ruler. And then in verse six, and he hurried. Christ tells him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Verse six, and he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Okay, so already we're seeing a difference. Christ is going to tell this man, go and sell everything you have and then come and follow me. The man can't do it. This guy, Zacchaeus, hey, come down, come down, and and uh, I'm coming. To, I'm going to come to your house. And it says that he came down. He received him gladly. Verse seven, when he. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Now here is what the rich young ruler is called to do. Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Not only will I repay it, I'll give back four times as much as what I took. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. And you'll see also it's important to realize that the rich young ruler, this example of the rich young ruler, sometimes like in the early days in the early church days of, of the church, you'll see people read this passage and they're like, boom, I'm gonna go sell everything I have, sell sell my home, sell everything, and I'm gonna go live in the desert or just kind of walk around as a vagrant and, and, and bum off people. You know, this is not normative. This is a very specific situation for this man who is a rich young ruler. I'm not saying you know, God, God doesn't tell us things like this in the sense of giving us from His Word certain patterns and, and examples, right? If your wealth is an idol, then I would say, well, yeah, you're, you're in the same predicament as this man, right? If that's an idol of yours. But if it's not, a, if, 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 if it's not an idol of yours, then certainly this is not normative, okay? In the sense of this, this applies for all of us in every situation, okay? Here's the thing, though. When we see what's going on here, and then we go back to the commandments in chapter 10, verse 19, He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. You have to ask, what should this man have responded with? What should he have said? Verse 20, what does he say? What does he actually say? We all know what he should have said. But verse 20, he says, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Youth meaning from since the age of 12. Because in that culture at the age of 12, that's when you would take on the yoke of the commandment. So he's saying, hey, from the age of 12, I've, I've kept all these things. And some of the rabbis were actually teaching that persons did possess some of the rabbis. You don't see this in Scripture, but some persons, you know, they would teach that you can, you do possess the ability uh, uh, without exception to fulfill God's laws, that you could, you could keep the Torah entirely. You know how many laws are in the Torah? 613. Right, you can't keep these things Comple- that's the whole point of the Torah, right? To drive you to Christ, to make you realize the, t- the, the, the first five books, those are, that's, that's the Torah, the, the Old Testament. To, realize, to make you realize, I can't do this. I need a Savior. But here's this man, he's saying, hey, I got it. You know, this is why the Reform view. That was a nice, I know we broke out in a nice hearty conversation a few months back about, you know, is it possible for me to do anything without that thing being tainted by sin? Anything is it can I do anything at all without it being tainted or poisoned or you know contaminated with me with with pride with selfishness with self glorification something the answer is no I mean right because because of sin yes, but even after being born again um, that 's why the Puritans would say we have to repent even of our repentance because even in our repentance there's it's contaminated by us with, you know, pride. You know, now that you've repented, you're like, yeah, man, I'm a little better than that guy. I mean, you know how evil, that's why Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. It just, they keep producing new idols. We get rid of one idol and boom, there's another one. And we're like, man, but that's why we have a Savior, praise God. That's why we don't trust in, in our works or in our performances. We run to Christ. And this, this shows you the beauty of what Christ has done, the power of that. That Christ, there was not a single time in his life, there was not a single thing that he did that was not done without sin. Did I say that right? That's where you get the t-shirt, I'm trying really hard not to be a heretic. I think I said that right. Christ was sinless. But that shows you how phenomenal this is, that Christ was actually sinless. Whereas we can't even go a, a single moment being sinless. right? But here Christ is sinless. But he tells this man, hey, you know, and of course, as we saw in the catechism class, this is, it, you know, the, the law is about the motives. You know, your actions are about motives. So it's not, it's not to say, well, you, you might as well give up and never do anything good at all then. No, because we still want to do good out of appreciation, out of gratitude for what God has given us and what He's done for us, right? We're still called to do that. But the point is, is that there is no righteousness involved in this. There's no satisfaction of the idea that now I've merited some good for what I've done. This man is saying, from my youth, Think how outrageous this is, man. It's not like you're saying, you know, I've sometimes at Texas Tech. It's it's amazing. I always ask the guys at Texas Tech. I'm like, "When's the last time you watched pornography?" And you know what they always tell me? It's crazy. I always kind of joke cuz it's like, "Man, there must be a revival going on at Tech." Cuz every single one of them tell me, "Well, I stopped." I stopped watching pornography. You know, you're like I got I know what you're up to. You st- when did you stop? Last night. That's what they're doing, right? So they're not lying. They stop, right? But here's the thing. This man is saying, he's not saying, you know, since last night I kept all these things. He's saying from the time I was a youth, I've kept all the commandments. Outrageous. But here's something even more outrageous. Christ, look what Christ does in verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. That's even more outrageous. The guy lies to Christ in his face. Christ looks at him with love. I want to read this from J.C. Ryle about this passage. He says this, We must never forget that Jesus feels love and compassion for the souls of the ungodly. And of course, this is an extension for us as well, right? It's easy for us to get hardened and calloused when, it, when we're dealing with lost people. Um, and this is especially true for me, and I know this is Pride Month, right? When we're engaging like the, 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 the LGBTQIAPK++ community. We're like, listen, it's very easy to be calloused and it's in, in abortion ministry, too. Like, you know, all the very over-the-top, grotesque, wicked, just grotesquely wicked stuff. It's easy to, but then it's like, man, here's, here's Christ, though, right? He says, Jesus feels love and compassion for the souls of the ungodly. He says, without controversy, he feels a particular love for those who hear his voice and follow him. Of course, for his people, right? He has a special love for his people. They are his sheep given to him by the Father, watch with the special care. They are his bride, joined to him in an everlasting covenant, dear to him as part of himself. But the heart of Jesus is a wide heart. He has abundance of pity, compassion, tender concern, even for those who are following sin in the world. He who wept over unbelieving Jerusalem is still the same. He would still gather into his bosom the ignorant and self-righteous, the faithless and impenitent, if they were only willing to be gathered salvation is ready for the worst of people if they will only come to Christ. Isn't that true? I mean, that's the beauty of the gospel. You can be in here today and you can be the worst God-hater, the most heinous, wicked person, most perverse, dark human being to ever walk the face of the earth. But you know what? If you're alive, Christ is calling you to come to him. And he will wash you and forgive you of every sin you've ever committed from now until from the past up until the day you die. That's the beauty of the gospel because of who Christ is. If they are lost, it's not because Jesus is not ready to save. His own solemn words unravel the mystery. Men love darkness instead of light. That's why they don't come, right? They love darkness. They love sin. But it's not, it's not because Christ isn't willing to pardon them and forgive them and save them. So that's what you have here. You know, this, this man's problem is not Christ. This man's problem is his idol. is his sin. I want to follow my sin. I want to follow my idol more than Jesus Christ. And I'll show you something. This is, this is uh, I was reading a book. Um... And I, uh, man, I forget the, the title of the book, but I read it a long time ago, and and it's 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 like the 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 economy of the days of Christ or something. The guys a the guy's a conservative, and he's responding to people. He's also an economist. He's responding to people that that say that Jesus teaches socialism, right? But he points out something in this passage that is just like it's just mind blowing. Okay, here's the thing that he points out. Okay, now first of all, what does he tell? He says, okay. He says, there's something you lack. What does he lack? Well, first of all, what did the think of the children? The children, they possessed nothing, but they didn't lack. This man possesses everything, but he lacks. The kingdom of God is not his. Salvation is not his. He's not right with God. He has everything, but he lacks what? The only thing that matters. Remember what Christ has said earlier. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but to lose your soul? This man has the whole world. He has it all. Where's the soul, right? He's not right with God. But here's the other thing regarding his riches. Look at what Christ tells him. When Christ tells him, go and sell everything you have and all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me, okay? The problem is, again, the exploited wealth. The wealth is more important than his commitment to Christ. It's an idolatry of wealth. And and by the way, even poor people can make wealth an idol. I've seen that a lot, right? When you're like, man, I wish I had what so-and-so had and you'll... You know, you see people, like, beating people up over tennis shoes. That's idolatry of wealth. That's the same heart that this man has. Okay, so it's not like, well, you know, I'm not a millionaire, so I don't have that problem. Yeah, but, you know, how often are we looking at the millionaires thinking, man, i would be nice to be a millionaire. But God in his providence keeps us away from that. Here's the thing, though, that I wanted to point out. Okay, treasure in heaven. Now, think of this, okay? Where, and here's, here's kind of like a historical question. If you had money in those days, where do you keep your money? Where do you keep your money? Not in your house. Where was the bank in those days? That's a better way to say it. You know where the bank was? It's phenomenal. It's the temple. That's where you kept your money. There was, there was $1.1 billion of assets kept on deposit in the temple in Jerusalem in the days of Christ. $1.1 billion. Equivalent to what would be $1.1 billion. Okay. And let me ask you something. And, and this is why, this, okay, Christ is telling this man, right? Sir, you need to withdraw your money from the temple. This is eighty thirty, right? Withdraw your money from the temple and give it away. Why? What's going to happen to that temple? In fact, when the Romans come in, that's the big thing. That was the that was the heavy blow to the people in Jerusalem. All the money's gone, right? The Romans come in, they sack Jerusalem in eighty seventy, they destroy everything, but mainly they're going for the bank, they're going for the treasury where the where the one point one billion dollars is. So ask yourself: In the end, what did this man gain? Even the wealth that he made an idol of, he lost. And that's how it always is. Whatever your idol is on this earth, you are going to lose it. It's going to be ripped away from you. In death, before then a lot of times, for this man, I mean, this man, again, He was so he was young. You know, when they say young, he could be anywhere, you know, probably considering he was probably a member of the Sanhedrin, so you're talking, um, I don't know, 20, 25, right? So, so, you know, 40 years, I mean, he's... Still alive at the very least. Everything is is handed down in these days, so it's it's still in his family. That money is in the temple, and it's 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 ransacked. It's gone. It's destroyed. It's crazy, right? So if you just and this this comes back to us, if you just obey Christ, is going to work out. This man, it's not like Christ is saying, "Listen, sir, forty years from now." Although he's going to tell us this in about three chapters, two chapters, forty years from now. There's an army that's going to rise up and they're going to come and they're going to destroy Jerusalem and take all the money that you are clinging to right now. He didn't tell them that. But he does tell them that. You see that? He doesn't, but he does. Same thing for us. When God tells you something and we're like, yeah, but God, that doesn't make sense to me. Why would I do that? Right? Because God told you to do it. That's that's the reason why. And if this man had done it, not only, you know, temporally, I mean, as far as like the worldly realm, he would have been better off. And then, of course, Eternally, when Christ says, hey, follow me, he doesn't follow him. And, of course, that's the most tragic thing. He doesn't follow him. But they, they go together, right? Because he doesn't follow him, where's this man today? He, he probably died watching, you know, we don't know how he died, but, but we know for a fact that either him or his, let's say, children died broke and probably murdered in Jerusalem. Because there was millions, I think, you know, Average estimates is like a million Jews died within a you know, very one- to two-week time span. Josephus, everybody says it was the greatest massacre, greatest tragedy in the history of human civilization. Blood was running you know, up to the, the knees. I mean, it was, it was brutal. And before that, everyone was starving and eating you know, each other and rats and everything else because there was a siege going on. So this man experienced that. But you know this, when Christ, what's he telling this man? If you don't have wealth, if you don't have this kind of stuff holding you down, not only is it easier to follow you, but it's in your best interest when the days come, especially in this generation, his generation, when you need to flee Jerusalem. Because if you're tied down to your stuff, if you're tied down to what? His property. He's property rich. If you're tied down to your property, you're not going to leave Jerusalem. I'm trying to save you. And like, nah, Jesus, this guy's out of his mind, right? He's a good teacher, but he's not that good. And he walks away. And so often that's exactly what people do in our in our in our world. Oh, he's a good teacher. He's you know, he yeah, he's he's I like him and everything, but not that much. I still gotta hold on to things that he tells me not to hold on to. And it's always to our detriment and devastation and destruction, ultimately, for this man, it led to his destruction. So what is holding you back? You know, think of that. I mean, for this man it was wealth, what's holding you back from following Christ? from committing to Christ? What are things in your life that are idols? That's what we have to ask ourselves, you know? Um, and And then also, I mean, again, I mean, this is the beauty of this too. Some ways to thank God for his providence. I mean, God takes care of us in ways we have no idea. The fact that we're here, this is the thing, right? This man wound up, broke, destroyed, his wealth wiped out, right? Imagine where you would be today without Christ. Where would you be today apart from Christ? Think of that. I know where Eric and I would be, man. <laughs> what, right? I mean, you see our buddies today, and they're still doing the same thing you were doing at like 20, 25, 30, and they can't get away from that stuff. It's, they're enslaved to it. And you're like, man, I'm no better than that. But by God's grace, here I am, you know? It's it's amazing. And so you can look at this and you can say, man, thank you, God. Look at the disciples who actually followed him, as we'll see. Look at the disciples when Christ says, hey, leave your nets and come and follow me. By God's grace, they did. And they're better off for it. Today, they're better off for it. 2,000 years later, Matthew, the tax collector, the wicked tax collector, you know, hey, leave your booth and follow me. By God's grace, he does. He's better off for it. This rich young ruler, hey, leave all your stuff, follow me. No, I can't do it. By God's grace, by God's grace, we have followed him. We've left our idols, and the idols that do crop up, we hate them and we repent of them and we turn back to Christ over and over and over. Because we know that, I mean, where else are we going to go? He has the words of eternal life. So, I mean, there's a lot there, but that poor guy, in a sense, you know, I mean, it's sad, but, I mean, Christ laid it all out, and at the end he said, no, it's not worth it. Following Christ is not worth it. I want my stuff, but a stuff where's the stuff leader? So we need to make sure that's not us, and wherever it is us, repent of that, turn from that, and then go to our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones who think that their wealth or their job or you know whatever they're living for outside of Christ is going to somehow bring some kind of satisfaction or joy. It's not. We need to tell them that. We need to talk to them, warn them. All right, let's pray. Oh Christ, we do thank you that you have given us grace, O oh Lord, to come and to to have our eyes open to behold the, the beauty of Christ, Lord. What a what a marvelous testimony of your grace towards us and towards sinners. And that even this day, Lord, that your arms are wide open for sinners to come and, and to call upon the name of Christ. We do pray for that, Lord, though the, the people in our lives, if there's anyone in this church who uh, who has not left everything to follow you who's not left their idols who are still clinging to their sin Lord please have mercy on them and give them grace to see the the predicament that they're in the catastrophe that's looming over them uh, over their lives and over their futures and over their their present right now so Lord we pray for them we pray for us God that you would give us hearts uh, the heart of Jesus Lord to be able to be able to love Uh, our enemies, to love those who are scandalous in thought and word and deed, Lord. But Lord, at the same time, give us grace to not compromise and to stand boldly and firmly for the things of of Christ, knowing that uh, that is what true love is, to tell people the truth about Christ. Lord, give us grace in this as well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we we come to the supper today, this is a